Thank you so much, uh, our worship team, and uh, you are our worship team. What a great soundtrack of just all of us singing and exalting in God's worship. But that really is what uh, I'm going to be speaking about. I can, you know, preachers can only say this so many times, but I'm going to speak about the most important thing that any of us can ever be engaged in this morning. Uh, and uh, there are only so many importance, but this one really, this is not preacher hyperbole. <laughs> we really is the most important thing. And uh, there are so many... Uh, opportunities to worship. The reality the Bible tells us is that we are always worshiping something and that our great opportunity is to transfer our worship from other things to the living God and then to make sure that this soundtrack in the other places that we want to worship, like I worshiped uh, and have worshiped over these last several weeks each time I eat uh, corn with butter and salt and pepper. And it was like, it's like a worshipful moment. It's like, how, how could this be the product of one little kernel that sits in the ground and rises up with a stalk and then arrives on the dinner plate? And, and um, if that worship terminated in that piece of corn <laughs> and the taste buds that God gave us to enjoy that, then there would be something wrong. But if that worship then, if it terminates in the God who gives that pleasure, then it can transform me and it can transform that moment into something beautiful and, and into something that God intended. And we're gonna look at the whole text of the psalm that was our call to worship. We're looking at the whys and why do we worship? And again, um, worship is what we will be doing in eternity. It's, it's, we'll not just be one 24-hour worship service, by the way. We'll be building bridges and gardening and eating and feasting and making music and art and all of that in the new creation. Um, but worship is, is our ultimate end because our end is to enjoy the God who made us. Um, I like the way that uh, John Piper said it once. He said that worship uh, is more important than missions, that missions, helping people know Jesus, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Um, worship is the ultimate goal of the church. And missions, make, taking the gospel to help people know Jesus, it exists because worship doesn't. Um, worship uh, is, is ultimate because God is ultimate, not us. And when this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, there will be no more need for missions. <laughs> we won't have a need for teaching. I'm not really sure exactly what preachers do in the new creation. <laughs> uh, because Jeremiah 31 says, no longer will a person need to teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they will all know him from the least to the greatest. Uh, but missions and Bible teaching, it's a temporary necessity. But worship is what we'll be engaged in forever and ever. So worship is the, it's the fuel and it's the goal of our lives. It's to be the soundtrack of our life. Uh, so I want to read the whole of this psalm. Uh, we read the first seven verses, and I think there's a good reason for this. This psalm begins with like these joyful bells inviting us into worship God, and, it, and it's calling us to gather in the plural. Uh, and so the first is a call to worship. The middle part of the psalm gives us the cause or the reason to worship, okay? But the final note of the psalm is kind of is a big downer if it's, if it's detached from all of it. Um, you, it's, it's like all the errors. And this is why this part of the psalm we didn't read to start worship with, but we are going to read the whole psalm for us. It's the caution of going through the motions of worship on our lips, but not having that worship fulfilled in life. 
Uh, and so we're going to look at those three things, the call to worship, the cause for worshiping God, and then a caution to us. So you can follow along as I read you the word of God. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And here's the cause. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, and here's the caution, (laughs) do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let's bow before God's word. Oh God, we don't deserve to be summoned to such a joyful purpose. And yet, Lord, we thank you that your heart is so big for all of us you've made that you, you long for all of us to come into relationship with you, intimate relationship with you that is expressed in the unbounded, unguarded affection that is worship. And so, God, we pray this morning that you be with each one of us, be with those who were uh, excited and animated by the thought of worship, as well as those who may have inner conflict and struggle of heart going on as part of their growth, and give special grace to the ones who maybe wonder, is worship even worth it? What is it about? Um, We pray, oh God, that you would speak, that you would take control in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is a rousing call, uh, and there are many of them in the Psalms that call God's people to come together in worship. This is one of the great purposes of the, of the Bible was to create the space and the place and the reality for God to bring his children together in one place to worship. And and I love uh, Psalm 87 where it says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion better than all the individual dwelling places of Jacob. And um, when you think about that text, what it's saying is that though God is everywhere, uh, and um, if every individual home uh, were able to diligently prepare worship, or maybe even like we might say through the, the gift of technology, and it is a gift, to be able to, you know, zoom into a worship service, um, that while that is good, and God is communing and, and is able to commune with each one of us individual, 
But it says that there is something even better in the eyes of God, not just in in our experience, but it says that God actually enjoys it even better um, when we are all gathered together. It's kind of like the difference between having a, if you have multiple kids, or you could say multiple friends, having a one-on-one, and then there's just something that expands your heart and spirit when you have all your kids together, or your closest friends together in one place. And so this, this psalm is saying that there is something, even in God's sight, that is preferable and, and a greater delight. And it's because God is glorified by like the public gathering of us together. Uh, you may not have realized it, but this morning, even in your way to church, this was part of pilgrimage in the Old Testament, but even on the way to church, you were preaching a sermon. Um, to everyone who was observing who knew where you were going. You, you were saying to them something that they could not apprehend by their own senses, and that is that there is a God who made you, who, who returning, re- reciprocating affection for him by gathering together is worthy of ordering your schedule, ordering your life on a day that is glorious. And I hope, I hope we all have many worship services outside in this beautiful September weather, right? Um, but, but that there is something, a day in God's courts is better than a thousand outside. Uh, even if you're at Rehoboth Beach, and I know we've got people tuning in at Rehoboth Beach, so no guilt about that. That's awesome. That's awesome. But, but there is something in the gathering together that we're gonna, let, let's taunt the people who are at their beach homes and let's just say like, we got something here right now for the next hour that's better than what you got for the weekend. <laughs> because we are experiencing the expansive power of God and worship. And, and when we worship God, what we are saying is, I want you to come into me and master me. Uh, worship is, it's not a verb that you would you would lightly use. It is, it is inviting God to come in. And I love a definition by a very godly man who was a, a archbishop, William Temple. Uh, and he's such an admirable person because um, he led the way for the church uh, in a time of controversy when the church was wondering, hey, you know, it's, we've got all these different ideas and nations and ethnicities. Is it really right for us to insist that Jesus Christ is the one object of worship, the one savior, uh, the one who, who fits every circumstance? And he, he led a Jerusalem assembly in 1928 to, to affirm when there was controversy over what should never be controversial in, inside of the church. Outside the church, I understand, if you don't understand who Jesus is. But inside the church, all of a sudden they were saying, is it really right? They were losing their center for us to worship Jesus Christ. And he says, he says, the very nature of the gospel, he produced this statement, and he said to them, the very nature of the gospel forbids us to say that Jesus Christ is the right belief for some, but not for others. Either he is true for all, or it is not true at all. And he laid that down in 1928 in, when there was controversy inside this church gathering, and they said there was a hush that came over the room. It was like God came in and, and just gave his exclamation point to that. There was a hush. And do you know that the next day, and they say the largely this was because of his leadership, the next day there was a unanimous passing of that declaration. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a guy who knew the Spirit's power, right? 
And at one point, he, was, he came up with this definition of worship. And it is with tremendous thought, and I think it weaves together so many scriptural strands. And we're going to go ahead and put it up on the screen. And he said this. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying of our imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy of that self-centeredness, which is the original sin and the source of actual sin. <laughs> now that is a mouthful. <laughs> but it begins with the fact that, that worship, it, it's submitting ourselves to God. <laughs> and, and, and that's why I'm, worship comes to us in all situations and says we can come honestly we can say hey the tape playing into my mind is not the tape that is worshiping god with all my heart strength and mind and so i come honestly i come with needing to own some things i come needing to get realigned and on track but it's saying god i want to submit everything i have and gather up all my stray affections that are scattered to so many things and, and anxieties in the world and anxieties in my life and fears can distract and divert. And I want to, like what the Psalm 86 says, he says, unite my heart to, to bow in reverence toward your name. And, and so that's the rousing call of Psalm 95. It, it's, it's the call to give ourselves to worship and it's, it's, it's plural. Again, if... We're in an age where if someone is sick or homebound or immunocompromised or um, a, a person who cannot get out, we used to call them shut-ins, in all those contexts, all the other ways are such a blessing. It's an opportunity. But those things don't replace corporate worship um, any more than the solitary visit of a pastor or a deacon or a friend replaces the ability to gather together. <laughs> It's just that simple. Um, it's, it's inadequate to try to replace what happens in the gathering of God's people together. And, and, and here's, here's a couple reasons for that. Um, you know, you not only can't be a, a fully functioning Christian without the gathering together, but we know it even in our families. You can't really be a a good family member if you, if you live an independent life. Well, first of all, think about this. Think of a, a son, it, let's say he was raised only by his mother, she put him through college, she raised him, she sacrificed and everything, and let's say he is living according to all the morals and all of the instruction his mom gave him and he's succeeding and he's doing everything. But let's say this, is he a good moral son if he lives according to the basic moral rules? He, he lives according to her instructions, but he never calls her. <laughs> she, she is never apprised of the good things that are basically repercussions of what she poured into his life. Can he be a good son? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe even if we say he minimally, you know, he sends her a card. He, let's say he even does call it, but he never goes to see her. <laughs> like, he's not a good son. There, there's something off 
in that relationship. There's something off in the reciprocal. You know, we're made to reciprocate, to give back to those who pour into our life. We'd say he's, he's not a good son, but let's say this. Let's say that he has many, many siblings. And they all delight the mom. And let's say, he says, well, I'll visit mom alone. But I'm not going to go when my siblings are around. Now, this may strike some of you because maybe some of you have siblings you really struggle with, right? Siblings in the flesh, siblings in the family. And you say, but, but you, you all know. And a parent knows if you have multiple kids. Like, you want to gather them together. You can't actually... You can't actually enjoy the family without, with that. You can't actually enjoy a child who takes a stand and says, I'll, I'll assemble individually and relate individually according to my life, but I'm not going to gather. And that also would break the very heart of God. But let's take this a little further. This psalm says that you're, God wants us to gather together to sing. Can you be a, a fully functioning child of God if you say, well, you know, hey, singing's not my thing. I don't sing. I think the biblical answer to that is that the invitation to sing, there are so many commands to sing God's praise throughout the scriptures all the way from uh, the beginning of Revelation in Job and Genesis all the way to Revelation that we can't omit singing. And the reality is, not all of us have great voices. We know that. That's why the Bible says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. It may not be very in tune. But we all have great songs. Because the, that's what matters. It's not whether we have a great voice. It's whether we have a great song to sing. And the theologian N.T. Wright reflects on singing this way. He said that when we sing the truths of God... We are, we are yielding our physicality, our body, our vocal cords, but everything within us is kind of vibrating to that tune. And he says, we turn our body into a resonating echo chamber. <laughs> you think of your body that way? <laughs> when you take words of song upon you, and we, you know, we see it sometimes in the cheesy musicals, where all of a sudden, like, they burst out into song. I mean, I think when the first one that I was involved with in high school was Oklahoma, you know, like, oh, what a beautiful morning. Like, it'd be cheesy music, but when you, when you let yourself, when you suspend your disbelief and enter into a musical, it just captures you, right? And you leave a good musical. You're just, you're singing that soundtrack. I mean, uh, maybe it's Hamilton, or maybe it's Wicked, or something else uh, up to date, right? But it, it just, like, it suspends your disbelief in that narrative. And all of a sudden, you're, you're embodying it. And N.T. Wright says this. He says, we become resonating echo chambers of the truths of a God who made the world, who is restoring and reconciling the world through the cross, and who is going to bring the world into complete harmony uh, when Christ comes and consummates all that he's doing. And he says, when we sing, we're anticipating that. And there are some truths that are just too beautiful, kind of like in the musical, they're too beautiful to be said. They have to be sung. And, and when they're sung, they're felt. I was reading this week an article by David O. Taylor from Fuller Seminary, um, and um, he's a professor of formation, spiritual formation. And he wrote about singing, and he says, when done well, this kind of singing draws not only 
draws something, it changes us individually. But when we sing together corporately, he calls it entrainment and interactional synchrony. I want to break that down a little bit for you, but I think he's, on to, he's, he's trying to define it biblically. But he says that when we sing, and even when we um, repeat together, and we do it with engagement, praying together like the words of the Lord's Prayer, he says there is something that happens to us together. We are taking the words that Christ gave us, and with generations of people and the global church around the world, we are repeating those words back to Christ that he gave to us and they form us. And he writes about the fact, he calls this sonic communion. And he says that when it happens together, um, psychobiologists, and I'm not giving them the authority of the Bible, I'm saying the Bible was here first. God got here first, but he says there is a a neural activation that is shared among listeners in our key emotional areas. It can be measured in the brain, in our amygdala, our insula, the nucleus of our brain. The, The parts of our brain that often respond to negative things well. You know, scientists have been showing us that, you know what makes us linger on a social media page? Two things, if something makes us angry or something makes us afraid. And uh, all the social media pages know, as well as Fox News and MSNBC, they know that the secret to getting viewers to engage is to make us either angry or to make us afraid. We are so being played. We are so being played. But God knew it before Fox and MSNBC, that there was something even more powerful than, than the lizard part of our brain responding to fear or anger. And that is the noble part of our brain, the way God made the neurons, responding to what is ultimate and beautiful. And and when we sing together, and there's even some evidence that when we are singing together something that we know has been sung for generations and enjoyed. You know how the, when we're worshiping, we're worshiping with the saints triumphant. We're worshiping with the host of heaven. We're worshiping with all the moral beings of the angels worshiping. There's a, there's, there are unseen things that we are joining ourselves to. And, and he relates this, he says, these create... These create a a syndrome in us um, that reinforces these truths and get inside us and form us. Now, now when you were driving here, did you know all that was going to (laughs) happen? Did you say, I've got to get to CLC because I want to have that surge of endorphins and that release of oxytocin uh, resulting in this heightened sense of fellow feeling with generations of saints and angels so that I can get rid of the impediments to my um, walking in worship in life. That wasn't what you were saying when you were driving. (laughs) But that is what happens in worship. And again, I think there's a sense in which, well, you, you can let the neuropsychobiologist um, uh, confirm the word of God. We've known it. Uh, I mean, it was Martin Luther, the reformer, who said that sometimes he felt dull and that he felt that his spiritual fire had gone out, and then he would come into a place of worship. Uh, and he says, at home in my own house, this is his own words, he says, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church where the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. 
And sometimes that's what God does. He takes the scripture that's read and he, he applies it in a moment or the prayer that's prayed. And, and so it says, come, and, and it, it says, elevate even the volume. And again, God isn't so much interested in loud volume as if he can't hear it or he needs that display. But he knows there's something that happens to us when we amplify his word and, and we engage it loudly. Um, but you'll know, he also says in verse six, it's true, sometimes we need to just quiet ourselves. And, and so one of the beauties of being led in corporate worship is we let someone else do the driving. Hopefully God, lead us through the paces. It's kind of like the difference between like, you know, I've done workouts that I'm controlling. And here's the problem with that. As soon as it begins to hurt, sometimes way too early, I want to stop. But a trainer... And a well-informed trainer would say, no, do these, you know, do this all the way through. Push yourself to exhaustion. And, and there's something that happens. When we corporately worship, when we worship at home, and look, I'll admit, I, was, I zoomed into worship, you know, a lot during the pandemic season. And we started saying, oh, yeah, this point, oh, yeah, this story, this scripture, this song. Hey, can we, uh, can, can we put on Maverick music? I don't really like the, Right? We start to select. Same thing reading the Bible. We're like, uh, yeah, these verses, I don't understand this. This isn't where I want to go. But when we yield and we let another lead us, and that leadership is, is God in its totality, he's going to run us through the paces. Some of us are, are, I mean, most of us can be very at home kind of in the mid-range. If, if the most intense outburst of worship is a 10, and like the really quiet, long-term silence. We kind of like it in the four to six zone. <laughs> and I think what this psalm is saying when it says, shout joyfully, and then it's saying, kneel quietly and just let silence wash over you. It's saying, God's saying, I, I want to elevate and amplify where, where you are the most energized. I want to fill that space. And I want to get in the quietest place of where you are. Because I'm going to fill all of that. And, and, and for that to happen, look, there's something that happens when we are all quiet together that doesn't happen when we're quiet alone. There, and, and, and so it's saying, in, in all of this, give yourself to it. And, and, and so that's the call. That's why we need someone else to be driving, and, and we, we all need that. And hopefully they're, they're driving us with the full, being fully informed by all of scripture, all the generations, um, all the segments and traditions of the church. What happens generally is one denomination is good at shouting, and one denomination is good at being quiet. <laughs> That's why we so need to be brought together and, and have the full scope of it. So that's, that's the call, give yourself to the cause. Is, is the fatherly care of God. That's in, in verse, four, verse three. And, and it stresses that both, um, and I love how it describes the hands of God. It says the depths of earth are in his hand. So the world is hand formed. And then uh, in verse five, um, um, so it's, it's hand held. The depths of earth are in his hand. He's holding the earth in his hand. Colossians one says that Jesus is sustaining the entire universe by the word of his power. But basically, just, just his continual sustaining is what causes all the cells, every place to hold together. 
So it's, it's handheld, and it's also hand-formed. And it says that this, this is the cause of the worship, that our very life and all that we are seeing and engaging is, is sustained by this God. And so we gather together just to recognize and to bring out uh, into the forefront of our declarations that this is true so that God is getting the glory. God doesn't like us to just go through life assuming, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I believe in God. But no, he wants us to declare continually to our hearts and the hearts of others. And again, that's why he runs us through the full gamut, quietness and exuberance. Because he is our God. Verse seven, there can be no creature more dependent on the care of another than a sheep. A sheep without a shepherd is a goner. But it says we are, we are the sheep under his continual care. He's showing us where the pasture is. He's protecting us. He's making us lie down. He's making us drink. And, and so those are the reasons. The reasons to worship are all around us if we will but see them. But the final part of this psalm is more than a little difficult. The, the, the final part of this psalm tells us how consequential worship is because it's saying that there was a whole generation of God's people who lost their legacy and lost their relevance for the entirety of their lives because they refused to do what worship really called them to. Doesn't mean they weren't gathering, doesn't mean they weren't going through the motions, but it meant that they, they were not um, hearkening to God's voice. Um, begins at verse seven. And again, like this seems like such a downer. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, you know, like, the psalm starts with like, you know, joyous wedding bells, Christmas bells, summon bells. And then it ends with like the long tolling funeral bells, <laughs> solemn bells. You know, what a, what a clinker. And one of the things this shows is that God is more um, interested in truth than he is about emotional symmetry or poetic symmetry or uplift. <laughs> He, he's willing to throw in a hard truth. And the truth is that we can squander the legacy and the calling of our life and we can squander it for the generation we live in if we simply go through the motions of worship and we don't let that worship really form us. And, and so it says, today if you hear his voice, and this passage, by the way, this part of the psalm, the part that nobody wants to read, <laughs> is expounded on in the longest way in the New Testament, arguably, than any other passage in the Old Testament. Some of you know where it is, but you can turn there later on your studies. It's in Hebrews chapter three, where it speaks and it takes this word, and, and, and this is what happened in this context. It says that on their, this psalm was used to celebrate their history of going through the wilderness, and to prevent them from romanticizing their history. Everybody wants to romanticize both their personal history, their church history, their national history. Uh, but it was facing them with the hard truth. And he said, look, that wilderness thing that God basically got you through, <laughs> you were not a co-star in. <laughs> he had to carry you through it. And instead of, you know, they didn't get through the wilderness saying, well, our backs are against the wall. Pharaoh's pursuing us, but God says we're going to get through. Wow, we're so excited to see how God's going to come through. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> that wasn't what they did. 
When they didn't have any bread or food and, and they were weary and when their backs were against the wall, especially in need of water, they didn't say, well, God has promised us that the land ahead is ours. We, we don't see any water, but that boy, it's gonna be exciting to see how God comes through. That's what they should have done. That's what you and I should do in our wilderness. <laughs> That's the way God wants us to respond. But what we often do is, oh man, we're gonna, we're gonna die out here. <laughs> we freak out, right? <laughs> That's, that's, that's our nature. And God is saying, no. He says, I want to speak into that freak out moment. And, and, and I want to speak my words and my promises. And I want you to basically, I want you to take me at my word. That's what God is saying. When all you see around me is sand and you need water, I want you to take me at my word. I'm going to get you through this. And when there is a repeated and an obstinate refusal... Not, not an honest reckoning to say, God, this is so hard. So many of the Psalms do that, and they are faithful. To say, God, all I see is sand. This is so hard, but you've given me a promise. I'm gonna cling to that. That is righteous. That is honest. That is awesome. But it's when you get to a point of saying, oh, God, following you is not worth it. I'm not even opening my heart to believe you. And, and so this word to hear is a, it really is best translated as hearken. We don't use the word hearken, but hearken means that you have heard in such a way that you, you are captivated to it and you are brought into conformity with it. That's, that's when the spirit animates the word of God and you all of a sudden are just, you are brought into alignment and you are awakened to it. But it says this whole generation refused that. And so, uh, when their backs were against the wall, when, when they came between a rock and sand when they needed water, uh, they complained against God. And even in the, in the deliverance of that, if you remember, uh, Moses did something that it looked slight, but it was such a rebellious act against God when he struck the rock instead of simply speak to the rock, where, where, where it says that, God labored over them. They resisted God. They're, he says their hearts were continually going astray. And what this is telling us in the context of worship is worship is not simply meant to be fulfilled upon our lips, but our worship is meant to be fulfilled in our lives. And that it's meant to inspire this, this adventure that God is present in our lives and the, the the soundtrack that we enjoyed in the sanctuary, not just the music, but the word and the prayers and the communion where Jesus says, I love you so much, I gave my own body up for you, I gave my life for you, I gladly poured out the blood of my life for you to be forgiven. It's where that soundtrack comes in and brings us reality. And we walk that reality out in the other six days of the week. And so that worship is, is fulfilled. It's that everyday life. It's what we, we saw in Romans 12. It's our spiritual service of worship in our everyday life, knowing that this same God is going with us. And I'm, I'm not saying that we pretend that we're the heroes who are always trusting. I'm saying that we, we continually align ourselves to the reality of God's promise. So I'm gonna give you a, a story. This may... This may trigger a couple of you. <laughs> um, so there was this mountain resort in Mexico. 
in kind of the center part of Mexico, where they carved the rooms into the mountain. And as they did that, it's, it's like this five-star resort. You want one of these rooms, you know, you're, you're paying luxury settings. But they had a problem. And that was they could not control the rodent population. And that will tend to get you some bad Yelp reviews. If somebody pays buku money and, you know, then there's a mouse. In the... So what they did is they found a solution, but a kind of unconventional solution. They found that if they placed some fairly large boa constrictors in the room, <laughs> it got rid of the mouse problem. And so they would say, I don't know what choice you would make, but let's say you've got this resort, and they say, well, um, we can't guarantee you won't have rodents unless you take a room with a boa constrictor. Would you like a boa constrictor? And so uh, a, a preacher I know was there with his wife, and they weren't particularly fond of reptiles, but they were even less fond of rodents. And so they said, all right, we'll take the room with the boa constrictor. And so they said, the thing, the, what that did, they said they actually, they didn't even really see the boa constrictor. It's up kind of up in the rock and come out, and the boa constrictors like to hunt at night. But say that, they said, what that did is every... Every moment they were in that room, they were aware of the presence of a boa constrictor. <laughs> like uh, when he needed to get up to use the bathroom at night or get a drink of water, you know, and it's dark, and they're like, okay, remember, there's a boa constrictor in the room. <laughs> so I am going to put on my slippers and I am going to walk attentively, <laughs> and every single move, I'm brushing my teeth, I hear a rustle over here. Is that boa constrictor? <laughs> Every single experience was mediated through an awakened awareness that there is a boa constrictor in the room. They did not live a second where that was not part of the narrative that they were aware of and adapting and adjusting themselves to. And, and I believe that is, that is in part what our faith in the promises of God, where God says today, if you hear my voice, and I want you to see the promise of this from God is that I want you to enter into my rest. I'm not looking for more performance from you. I, I did not start loving you because you, you know, submitted a resume of accomplishments. And I do not stop loving you because of your relapses and continual failures and the narrative that you really have never put it together. I, don't, I didn't start because of your resume. I don't stop because of your failures. I want you to enter into my rest. I want you to be in intimate relationship with me. After all, that's really what worship is, isn't it? It's really opening ourselves into intimate relationship with a God who loved us so much that he went to the cross knowing the worst things about us and knowing that he ultimately was going to completely perfect us in the final end but that he was gonna fully love us right in the moment we're living in. That, that reality, when it comes into our life, it's not a fearful, unknown, maybe recoiling adjustment we make in the eyes of a boa constrictor, but it's this, this open-eyed sense of wonder, expectancy, awareness that God is in every single 
moment and that we cannot close our heart to that reality. That's the caution to say, are you taking the God you experience in this place and saying, God, that is the reality so that in every, on every turf I set my foot upon, on every turf I tread upon, I'm, I'm taking a faith that I, I'm not living as an orphan abandoned in a universe that can just do anything to me. I am living as a child of the God in whose hands the depths of the ocean are, in whose hands the depths of my life are, in whose hands I've been formed, who's gonna guide me through the storms of life, who's gonna bring the, the maximum impact of the things he's pouring out. And it's saying that real worship is worship that is fulfilled in life. And what we do when we gather together, we are, we are solidifying that reality so that we can carry it and live it out. Let's pray together. Father, we, we don't deserve to be invited to this, and yet your love is not based on our deserving. We thank you that your heart is restless. You yearn to have a people who walk with you in relationship. We thank you, Lord, that that love has conquered and overcome even our resistance, even our unbelief, even our fits and starts through the cross. That there is therefore now nothing, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, because there is no condemnation, we can be so honest before you. And we come Lord to this moment where we're, we're really in a special way face to face. We can't kind of halfway take communion. We either take it or not. We either take the body and blood or we don't. And this morning, Lord, we pray for grace for everyone whose heart says, Lord, I turn to you from all of my sin. I ask for your cleansing. Make me whole. Who believes in the power of the blood shed at the cross. Lord, um, we come to you in that honesty. And we pray for your spirit to take these emblems of the bread and the cup. And as Christ spoke and set them apart for us, to use them for your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to do two things with me. First is to take upon your lips a prayer of confession. And that confession is not beating ourselves up. It really is removing the blemishes. It's letting God wipe the blemishes from us. And so let's unite our hearts by praying for that. If you put that up on the screen. It's just a uh, prayer that again encompasses all the ways that we need to regather our life before God. And if you would, join me in audibly praying from the heart as we read together this prayer. Let us pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will 
and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And then I invite you to affirm your faith um, through a statement of what it means to receive the good news of the gospel. This statement is just about 500 years old. Um, and it comes from one of the statements of our church. Um, as an eco-church, uh, we embrace the articulation of what this catechism says. And it puts together in one paragraph uh, what a believer in Jesus Christ receives and believes. And I invite you uh, to read it and to make it your own. Uh, ultimately, I, I would encourage us to learn it as a congregation. Believer in Jesus Christ, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And then together, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I invite you to receive these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, our Lord Jesus Christ took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I invite all who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and all who walk in honest confession of that, turning and repenting of sin, to come and commune with God. Uh, we have uh, gluten-free over here for those who have allergies. Uh, everything else is open here, and if you need someone to bring it to your seat, just motion and we'll make sure you're served there. Oh God, use this time and draw our hearts out in communion with you in Christ's name. Amen. Our service would come forward.
good to resonate to the song that will define all the ages, the song of Christ, the lamb, the renewed one. Um, let's lift up our hearts, and I especially want to carry this benediction even to this new month, this new season. Um, may God define us as we walk in faith, believing the reality God is with us as we walk into September, into the fall of 2022. Lift up your hearts. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And may he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight and equip us with everything good for honoring his name. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.